So here we are, day three. But who's counting? <laughs> Anybody? <laughs> uh, sometimes I do, though, because there really is a rhythm. There's a real rhythm in the retreat. And after seeing uh, people in groups today, both for myself and the other teachers, it's clear that people are now well in the retreat. You know? there, has, there has been an arrival. And it's very wonderful to be here with you as, this, as we walk this journey together and this deepening begins to happen. I was sitting, this, this last sitting together, we, it was so still. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else noticed the quality of the silence in this room. Sometimes I, I just hold the image for a moment that there are 90 people in this room <laughs> and it's absolutely still you know, to, in a way that you could hear a coin drop literally hear a coin drop in this room of 90 people. And it's just, there's something so poignant, potent about that, you know, that, that we can uh, come into this stillness like this together. And these practices that we've been doing from the beginning, you know, have all been supporting us to enter into this stillness, to this silence, and stillness in the silence of the stillness. Working with the breathing, you know, the instructions around the long breaths, this beautiful instruction of feeling and sensing that long breath as a way to settle and begin to calm the mind and the body short breath, really working with that, really uh, sensing the body and the sensations in the body to help ground and anchor our attention here in this present moment. And so the present moment starts to feel much more firm, much more stable in a way, and it gives a sense of stillness, it gives a sense of this... um, silence, where there's not much moving. But what's interesting, I like to think of this metaphor as these practices are like putting a stake in a river. Because it really, our experience really isn't still. And there's this wonderful paradox that begins to happen through the coming more deeply into the stillness which is supported by the body and starting to um, return more back to the breath and the body, we establish a kind of stillness which is like the stake in the river which then allows us to really see and feel and sense the movement the movement of life, the stream of life, the river of life. Because there really, there really isn't such a thing as stillness without the movement and movement without the stillness. They, they work together. And I think it's one of the places that sometimes, I know for a long time I got a little bit confused about that because I thought that I was supposed to just get more and more and more still so that there wasn't really much happening. But what actually does happen, and we see this, 
is that the more still we become, the more we actually see clearly and can feel and sense the aliveness and the vitality of our experience, which is this human experience that we are. This mind and this body is alive. There's vitality. There's energy. And as we become more still, that's what we actually feel. That's what we sense. So we're so aware of the movement of the mind, the movement of the thoughts, the movement of the, of the images, the memories, the future ideas, the plans, the anticipations, the expectations. We're aware of what's moving in the body, around the emotions, and the, the different, perhaps the fears or the anxieties or the tensions some of the joy, some of the, the happiness. We, we start to feel and sense that, that expression of life by becoming more and more still. And what's, what's so lovely that I, I see happens in this practice is that we begin to really establish more and more that stake, sort of the stake in the river, so whether we're on retreat or we're off of a retreat, and more and more we are present in a way we can be present for the movement of life, the conditions of life. So that we're in a way no, no longer so much in reaction to, but more with that flow in the stream of our life. We're, we're more um, flowing. Sometimes I like to just, uh, that word is such a good word, just flowing, flowing with the way things are. When we, when we start to come more fully into our experience, and we can, we can see this here, is that there's this range of uh, what the Buddha calls this feeling tone, which is the second foundation of mindfulness. We've been talking about the first foundation with the breath and the body. But the second foundation is this uh, called feeling tone, or Vedana, Vedana in Pali. And the feeling tone is every... <coughs> Every moment's experience, every bodily experience and mental experience has a kind of uh, valence to it, a, 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 a tone to it of either pleasant or unpleasant or painful or neutral, somewhere in between. And in this flow of experience or this flow of conditions that we see in the mind and the body, we're in contact with this Vedana, this feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or somewhere in between. And this is just part of the um, way things are. It's not that we produce that necessarily. Um, um, certainly those, those uh, feeling tones are also conditioned by uh, past experiences. And however, however, they're always present. We're always going to feel something that's either painful on one end, pleasant on the other end, or somewhere in between on that continuum. Every moment. And the Buddha made this so important that he made it the second foundation of mindfulness. So that we start to become aware, we start to uh, bring our mindfulness and our investigation into the quality of this valence of experience. So, so that, because what happens, and we, we see what happens, is that we don't like the painful experience. 
we much prefer, and this is just biological, right? We, 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 we have to respond to difficult, challenging, painful experiences in, or, in order to survive. And so we get geared up, we get in very energized in the, in the, when there's pain to try to stop it, to try to get rid of it. It's a very biological, evolutionary reaction. But we, we don't like it, we want to get rid of it, we want, to, we, we want to push it away. And if we don't really understand, if we're not really in contact with what's happening, we can just get caught up in this um, instinctual drive of trying to get rid of pain, get rid of uh, anything that's unpleasant. And we can be very contracted and um, uh, tight around trying to get rid of that pain maybe not bringing so much wisdom and so much compassion to the experience when we get that fearful or, or tight around it. And then the other end of it, when the experience is more pleasant, yeah, that's what we want, and there can be a kind of grasping or attaching or trying to get that to, to, stay, uh, to stay and try not to get the pain to come back, and we get into this whole kind of manipulation and control of our experience. And then when the experience is somewhat neutral, this is when we often kind of fall asleep because nothing's happening, right? If we're not really stimulated by the pleasure or the pain, like nothing's happening. It's kind of boring. Why isn't anything happening? But it's not really that nothing's happening. It's just that those, those valences aren't very charged at that moment. Things are much more even or just kind of Mm, you know, just neutral. Oh. And, and the interesting thing is that uh, when we really stay present and allow that neutrality, it can be a great relief, honestly. It's like, finally, I'm not in pain, <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not holding on to pleasure, and I'm just feeling quite quiet and at ease. And interestingly enough, we, when we really start to look at this, we see that a lot of time our experience is, is just very neutral. Not much happening at all, and it's very ordinary. And, um, you know, but sometimes we, we can make some meaning out of that and think that we're not getting anywhere, or something sh- more should be happening, or how is my practice going to progress if it's just like this, and doesn't seem very interesting or very exciting. But we can really start to look at that very differently and start to actually just feel and sense what it's like when, when we're not being impinged on, uh, by, those, both by those conditions that, are, that have a certain intensity to them of pain or pleasure. It's a kind of doorway. It's a doorway. The neutrality is a doorway into equanimity and into, into peacefulness. We can really, really be peaceful there if, if we can recognize it for what it is without making something out of it or being frightened by it or, or thinking something's wrong with us or our practice. So, so we, start to, we start to be interested in this flow flow of experience, pleasant and unpleasant and, and neutral. 
And we see that this really is the flow. There's a continuum. There's, there's, a, there's a, a river, like a stream of life that just keeps happening. You know, and sometimes we really want to s- shut it down. It's like this stream of my thoughts has been going on a little bit too long now, you know. It's like, why can't it stop? But we have our practices and, you know, we know how to return and feel the breath and settle ourselves again. But yet it doesn't stop. Has anybody been able to stop the flow of experience yet? It doesn't stop. You know, I, I did think, I did believe for a long time in the, be- in the early part of my practice that maybe it wouldn't stop, but it certainly would get more pleasurable. Right, that it would swing over to the more pleasant end of the continuum to the point where I really did believe, I really did think that this is what the path, the path was pointing to, that there would be a point where there would be no more painful experience. <laughs> there wouldn't be, and, and I mean, I really did believe that. I even thought that people, you know, great saints and masters who were, you know, suffering, not suffering, but, but dying you know, of, of really difficult diseases wouldn't feel anything, you know, that somehow they would just be completely in a, you know, like in another realm or something. But I don't think that's what, I don't think that's what it's about, you know? I think it's really this, it's about our, though our relationship. It's how we're coming into relationship with the experiences of life so that perhaps we're not resisting the painful. Perhaps we're not trying to manipulate our experience in a way so, it's, so that we keep that away. We, we um, separate from the pain or we deny the pain or we pretend it's not there or we suppress it. We, we compartmentalize or fragment our experience. So, oh no, there's no pain. There's no suffering. I'm not angry. I'm not upset. I don't care. You know, it's just like ways we just want to shut it off. And I think that's really more of, and then try to get more and more pleasurable experiences. But I think that's more of where our practice is pointing to, is how to come into a wise relationship with the conditions of life just as they are. With his mind, you have the mind, the mental activity of mind, and the body, the senses, the sights, the smells, the taste, the, the touch. Um, the, the, uh, I'm not left one out here, the, the, the ears, hearing. And each one of those, each one of those has a little valence, has a valence every moment. Whether I like it, you know, 7A just coughed, you know, that had a valence, you know? What was that? Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? You know, we're, we're impacted. Everything is impacting us moment to moment to moment. And the more that I allow myself to be present and open to this flow of conditions, I'm here. I'm in my life. I'm, I'm in my experience. I'm connected to the way things are. And I might have resistance, I might be grasping on to more pleasant, but I can start to see that. I can start to investigate that, be curious about that, because I can see how that will begin to fragment 
my experience and shut me down, close me off, start to compartmentalize my experience according to my, my wishes, according to my desires, rather than the way things actually are. So the Buddha, the Buddha was so, uh, was so, he saw so clearly how important it was to open to experience that he, when in the Four Noble Truths, these great truths that arose for the Buddha, the very first one that he proclaimed was that there is dukkha in this life. There is pain Dukkha is, is often um, translated as suffering, but sometimes not the best translation. You know, just this unsatisfactory element that, light isn't, that our, our experience is not often very satisfactory. It's painful a lot of the time. You know, we, we lose the things we love. We're separated from the things we love. We can't have what we want. You know, birth and, and aging and sickness and death are painful. And the Buddha proclaimed, this is the truth. This is the first noble truth. There is suffering in this life. There is dukkha in this life. And we were, we were invited to, we are invited to understand this dukkha. Understand. Stand under. Really really come into a wise relationship with this, open to it, understand it. This is a truth, the truth of our condition. There is birth, there is aging, there is illness, and there is death. From the time that we are born... It's all downhill. <laughs> downhill to you know what. You know, just we're already heading for, for the grave. I wanted to read this. Um, there's a, a book uh, by David Shields that's called The Thing About Life is That One Day You'll Be Dead. <laughs> and it's... Um, he just goes through a lot of different statistics and I just want to read a few of them. <laughs> He's if, he says, if you could live forever in good health at a particular age, what age would you, would you be? As people get older, their ideal age gets higher. For 18 to 24-year-olds, it's age 27. For 25 to 29-year-olds, it's 31. For 40 to 49-year-olds, it's 40. And for people over 64, it's 59. <laughs> That's what my father used to always say. You know, 59 was the ideal age. He says, your strength and coordination peak at 19. Your body... (laughs) I I heard a few groans. Your body is the most flexible until age 20. After that, joint function steadily declines. Right? Your IQ is highest between 18 and 25. Once your brain peaks in size at age 25, it starts shrinking, (laughs) losing weight and filling with fluid. As you age, your responses to stimuli of all kinds become slower and more inaccurate. 
especially in more complex tasks. <laughs> At 30, you reach peak bone mass. Your bones are as dense and strong as they'll ever be. In your late 30s, you start losing more bone than you make. By age 35, nearly everyone shows some signs of aging, such as graying hair, wrinkles, less strength, less speed, stiffening in the walls of the central arteries, degeneration of the heart's blood vessels, (laughs) diminished blood supply to the brain, and elevated blood pressure. This is... This is, and you know, we take this so personally, don't we? (laughs) You know, like we've done something wrong if we start having these kinds of symptoms or, you know, if we start experiencing difficulties in our body. It's so personal. And somehow we miss that this is the law of nature. This is just the way things are. You know, we call it biological, physiological. In late middle age, the skin in your hands become less sensitive to touch. Your skin cells regenerate less often. The skin weakens and dries. The number of sebaceous glands declines dramatically and all of the tissues of the the skin undergo some change. You get wrinkles and gray hair. Um, Emerson uh, Emerson said, "You you are being asked to do things and yet you are not decrepit enough to turn them down. I think we can all relate to that. You gain weight until age 55, at which point you begin to shed weight, specifically lean tissue, muscle mass, water, and bone. At 60, you've lost 25% of the volume of saliva you normally secrete for food. When you're very young, your ability to smell is so intense as to be nearly overwhelming. But by the time you're in your 80s, Not only has your ability to smell declined significantly, but you yourself no longer even have a distinctive odor. You can stop using deodorants. (laughs) You're vanishing. (laughs) So as uh, the British poet Henry Reid helpfully observed one time, he said, as we get older, we do not get any younger. So this is, you know, this is the, the, the law. We call it the dharma, the law, the way of things. This is the nature of things. Dharma is sometimes nature, law, harmony, the way things are. You know? and, and, and we personalize. We, we personalize just about everything. You know, that's, that's the, the difficulty, is that it's difficult for us sometimes to see this, this larger picture. You know, and sometimes our lives can feel like just a constant confrontation with dukkha. You know, just a constant, like one, we're like being assaulted, you know, one thing after the next. I mean, not everybody. I mean, some people, it's more neutral, and, but that can also be problematic sometimes for people because it just can be very boring, you know, or kind of stale or, you know. But still, there's something to, to really come into relationship with here. And these, these teachings around dukkha and, and, you know, that we're heading, you know, towards death for the minute we're born, I mean, this can all sound very pessimistic, you know. It's like sometimes the, Buddha, the Buddha's teachings can just sound so pessimistic, talking about suffering and, you know, suffer. I mean, we hear that a lot as uh, Buddhist 
you know, you just talk about suffering all the time. It's always about dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. But the thing is that it's not pessimistic because it's realistic. You know, this is, this is the truth. It's the truth of our existence. And so we are asked to come into a wise relationship with this aspect of life because it is one side of the continuum. It's the, continu- it's the side that it, there's a painful element. There's a suffering element in our life. But what's so, what's so uh, important and wonderful to reflect on, and, and Kirisaro was bringing this in last night, was the piece on sukha. You know, there's dukkha, but then there is the sukha. The sukha is the, uh, he spoke about it last night, is the, um, the ease or the, the pleasure, the happiness. The other end of the continuum, dukkha and sukha. And as, as we open to experience, and we're not kind of in our fixation around manipulation and control and desire and wanting and uh, ex- expecting and demanding and, and contracting around our, our ideas about what we think is right or necessary for us, as we, as we start to let go of that and we, we come into a wiser relationship with things, then we begin to also open to the sukha, to the sweetness, the sweetness. Sukha is sweet, has a sweet flavor to it because it is in the flow of experience. It is not something that we fabricate. It's not something that we have to generate. It is part of this life. Dukkha and Sukha. And what was lovely about Kirisaro's uh, teaching last night was he was saying, we can acknowledge this, recognize this, open to it, recognize it, acknowledge that the Sukha is here. Also the pity, the pity, the, the, the rapture, the bliss, the more intensified, it's more of an intensified pleasure. Sometimes because it's intensified, it actually has, can sometimes have a little quality of, of um, dukkha to it. You know, that, that sometimes we think, you know, pity, 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 that's, you know, what we want, you know, the bliss, bliss, but then you get it, and it actually isn't that comfortable sometimes because there's, there can be a lot of agitation, a lot of energy, a lot of restlessness in that, in that energy of, of the pity, of the, of the rapture. And in the, in, the, in the jhanic factors, the pity comes before the sukha, the sukha comes next, and it's a calming, it's a more of a, a calming, a more easeful, a more, it's like that, that energy it, it, it subsides, and it's, it's more of a, a pleasant, sweet feeling. Mm-hmm. So, so we, can, we, can, we start to open to this, this, the, the conditions of life just the way they are. And we see that we don't have to go very far. I mean, particularly when you come on retreat, you see you don't have to go very far for the sukha. You don't have to go too far sometimes for the dukkha. But you don't have to go too far for the sukha. You know, you just... I mean, tonight after the... Um, it must have been the 5.30 when we were going out for tea, and did you see the moon? 
I mean, I haven't seen a moon like that. I mean, it was a, I could see the moon. I could see the whole moon. You know, you could see, I could see the whole sphere. And then the light, the sunlight just hitting that one little sliver of the moon. Just lighting up that, just that sliver. Rather than just seeing the light, you could see the whole sphere. And it was just like, oh, you know, just that kind of take a breath at just the beauty of that. Our moon, it's our moon, you know? I mean, it's kind of personal, you know? <laughs> My moon, you know? And, and yet it regulates our entire life, you know? It's so, it's, it's part of us. We, we couldn't exist without that moon. No, and so there's so there's a way that you know my heart kind of you know quivered or skipped a beat, and sometimes we do want to share that experience. You know, it's like it's hard just to sometimes take in that that beauty and that that pleasure and and not share it. It's like there's a there's almost like a a pull to want to pull somebody in and go look look at the moon. You know, you want to you want to join together in that. And I did that actually. I pulled somebody. I pulled Kathy over. You know, look, did you see the moon? You know, and there's just it's something that energy comes up, and it just it's it, we want to gather in, join in together with that. So we we begin to open to these. We call them the simple pleasures, which is so lovely on retreat because sometimes that river of life, of the momentum of life is so strong that we can get carried away through our ideas or our, 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 our mental projections about what we think is supposed to be happening. You know, our goals and our, 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 um, our drives and our, um, our visions, which are all wonderful, you know, but... but well, maybe not some of our desires and our addictions aren't so wonderful, but, the, but the, the vision that sometimes drives us to good things in our lives, it can still pull us in a way that we can miss some of the, sim- sim- the simplicity, the simple sukha, pleasure, that's here for us any time we just stop for a moment. Just stop for a moment and, and maybe even just feel, feel the breath or listen to a sound or the sound of silence or just even the feel of just stopping for a moment. There's, there can be something quite, quite sweet in that. And sometimes even when we're confronting something that's somewhat painful, when we're present... And we're in, we can sense the stillness within, our, within ourselves. And we meet that, sometimes that difficulty. We can feel something sweet. You can, there can even be something sweet in the meeting of that difficulty. Which is also the mind, the mind can't sometimes get itself around that. You know, like when somebody's really having a difficult time and you just kind of are there present for them with your heart, compassionate, open, caring. There's a sweetness, the sweetness in the compassion, the compassion that's meeting that difficulty. And so sometimes that sukha and the dukkha, even though it seems like they're on different ends of the continuum, 
I wonder if they're actually part of a circle. You know, where sometimes the, the dukkha and the sukha can meet together and they're not so separated. They're not so different, but they, they move together, they flow together. We can feel the, 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 that sweet, uh, pleasant quality of just being present. Whatever is happening, whatever is occurring in my experience, because I am connected, because I am experiencing a quality of kindness, because my heart is open and not closed, because I have a willingness to be here no matter what, that brings this quality of kind of a, a good feeling. It's like a good feeling in that, in, in that energy, in that intention, in that awareness, in that presence. So, so we can start to get a sense of how they start to, things just start to come together more. You know, rather than stillness and activity being <coughs> polarized and opposite, we start to see more how things are moving together. They're flowing together. We can feel a quality of stillness in the movement. In the movement, we can feel the stillness. In the experience of sometimes somewhat painful through the presence, there's a quality of, it's okay. There's something okay here. So these, all these, these, po- that these things which seem so opposite and polarized, start that's, that the duality col- starts to collapse more and more. And we're here. We're here for this expression of life, for life, for, for the vitality of life, the aliveness of life, the wakefulness of life. And so rather than having so much um, attention on trying to have certain kinds of experiences, which can happen in a meditative uh, in, uh, uh, journey, we can, we can think sometimes, or even get, if I might say without trying to be judgmental, but trying to get, dis- sometimes we can get distracted, you know, we can get distracted by, by trying to have certain kinds of experiences that come out of some um, idea we have about the practice, rather than this quality of opening to what's already here. And that's where we began the retreat. We began the retreat with this, we don't really have to be going anywhere. No, we don't, we don't this whole idea of a destination, like, a, like we're trying to get somewhere in our practice but rather this more of the sense of opening to the now, this now moment, this now moment, and see what's actually here. See what's actually here, what's actually happening. And then, then what's our capacity to begin to really be present for whatever, this whole range of experience. But that's the practice, because it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. Sometimes we say, and maybe it was even Ajahn Chah who said, it's simple, but not easy. Maybe it was Manindraji. I think it was <coughs> Man, all what, these great masters start getting, you know, kind of, um, they all seem 
the same and sometimes these great these great minds you know so simple but not easy simple simple because it's just this moment we have a chance now to see if we can open and if we can't if we didn't we have another chance and then we have another chance and then we have another chance and that's what's so amazing is that we always have a new beginning we always can begin again let go let go of what happened before we don't have to go back and tr- and track what went wrong or how what 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 happened and try to understand it and figure it out let it go and just start now start now it's a fresh beginning it's a new beginning every moment comes as in a way as sort of a an open door an open door we if we're not holding on to what happened in the past and we're not leaning into the future moment in some kind of anticipation it's an open door we just see we we sit in the presence and see what happens and then look at be interested in our relationship how are uh, how are we relating is there grasping in the mind is there resistance is there rejection is there a way that i'm contracting is there a way that i'm pushing away is there a way i can open and allow and soften and relax and allow you know we're really we're really examining this capacity we have to be present in any moment because the buddha didn't stop with dukkha you know he didn't stop with the first noble truth that this is there is suffering there's there the next the next truth was that there is a we can we can see one of the causes for the suffering is that we hold on we grasp we cling because we want things to be a certain way and we can let go like let go of that clinging let go of that grasping let go and so our practice becomes one of this letting go we talk a lot about letting go let go but what are we letting go of we're letting go of the way that we get attached and hold on and try to control and fix our experience a particular way so all of our practices all of the teachings are pointing to this pointing to ways to support us to help us to let go to to open our clenched fist and release keep releasing releasing that's the qigong the qigong so beautiful practice that that tenisser and kitisaro are offering because it is that releasing releasing Mm, through the body through the mind through the heart what's interesting though um sokni rinpoche one of the one of our teachers uh, tibetan teachers said that to let go is a tiny miracle i just love that to let go is a tiny miracle and i think the reason i love it so much is because we can talk 
a lot about letting go, but it's not that easy, right? If I could let go, I would let go, right? But I can't let go. (laughs) You know, how often we've wanted to let go. But the conditions of mind and heart and body just are not going to let go of the fear, of the anxieties, of the hostilities, of the, of the confusion, the delusion. I mean, we, you know, we just do the very best that we can. And when the letting go happens, we can be very grateful. <laughs> we can be very pleased about that. Because, yes, we have a certain amount of influence hmm, through the, our effort and our energy and you know, keeping our foot to the pedal and, and staying, uh, you know, in the, going in the right direction and uh, coming here and participating in this retreat and, you know, just keep going, keep going, keep going, doing the practices, listening to the teachings, you know, staying with the with what's being, what we're, what, what's being offered here. And we, we keep our foot on the pedal, and it, it seems to make a difference. It seems to make a difference. It may not be making a difference according to our own timeline. We, we might have timelines for ourselves in terms of how the letting go should be happening. <laughs> When it should be happening, how come it's not happening, and what you know, how come I'm feeling what I'm feeling today when it's day three, you know? But you know, we just keep, we keep putting in our time. We, we used to say, keep punching the time clock. You know, just punch, just sit, and walk, and don't think much about it. You know, <laughs> just put in your time. And when you're done, just punch out, you know? But (laughs) don't think about it so much, you know? And it seems to make a difference. And what seems to make a difference is that what really lets go, I think ultimately it's not me that lets go. What lets go is the wisdom. There, there's, a, there's a cultivation of an understanding. There's a cultivation of a, of a wisdom that knows that if I hold on, I'm going to suffer. And I start to see that again and again and again. And the more I see it, why am I still holding on? <laughs> you know? And finally, you know, the penny drops. It's like, let go. And the, it's the wisdom, there's a, there's, a, there's a cultivation of an understanding of this truth, of the way things are. And then we let go, we release. And many of us have had the experience where we just get so fed up that we, we're just done, right? You're just like, I'm not doing this anymore. I've had it. I'm not going to just keep repeating these same patterns again and again and again. I'm done. And we let go. We move on. So when people tell me that they're really frustrated and really agitated, 
you know, with what they're seeing in themselves and their patterns and their um, mind states. And, you know, I think, yeah, they're getting closer. (laughs) (laughs) They're almost there. You know, they're going to get so fed up with this dukkha that they're going to just give it up. So sometimes it takes that. You know, sometimes it takes really getting, you know, entering into the fire, really entering into the fire of our own uh, conditioned patterns, our own conditioning, and, you know, having to really feel, feel it, really feel the burning, feel the pain, and then, then we find our way out, find our way out of it. And I think then we really come together with more compassion. We really start to recognize the solidarity of our human predicament. And it does awaken this heart of compassion because we know it's not so personal. It's not personal, dukkha. It's not this mind we're all, we're all experiencing similar things in the mind. We're all experiencing similar things in our body. It's sometimes much more intense for some people than other people. But it's, you know, painful. Body, body, body is painful. Dukkha, dukkha. You know? And that's one of the things that makes our job as teachers pretty easy because most people are going through similar things. So, you know, we can kind of get on board with, with that. Besides, we see it within our own minds and our own hearts and our own bodies. And we're all sharing in this together. It really opens our heart of compassion. We join together. We help each other. We care for each other as our heart opens. And as Naomi Shihab Nye, a Palestinian-Israeli amazing woman poet, she said, in one of her poems, she said, then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore. And that's just been going, that, that's almost like a mantra for me now, you know. I just hear that, that going through my mind, you know, then it's only kindness that makes sense. I mean, what else makes sense? When we really start to open fully to this human condition that we find ourselves in as a, as a humanity, as a collective humanity, in this world, in this suffering world. But what we want to remember in our practice is it's not just a suffering world. It's also a very beautiful world. In fact, we call it the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And our practice is to see if we can open, open our heart. Sharon Salzberg's book, book, one of her book titles is A Heart as Wide as the World. Can we embrace the conditions of this life more and more and more. And, and it is a more and more and more. 
is not a just like, okay, now it's done. <laughs> okay, I've arrived. My heart's open. I don't think it's like that. It seems like it's more and more and more and more. <laughs> there's always more and there's always more. And it doesn't seem like there's an end. It doesn't seem like there's any end to this path. But perhaps, perhaps, there is more sweetness. And perhaps there is more joy. And perhaps there is a wiser and more compassionate way to be in this world that is fulfilling and satisfying. So I think I'll end there. then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Thank you. So we have some time now for walking or continued practice in any way that suits you now and again if you are feeling tired or you need to take care and be kind to yourself do that in any way that you need to we'll have another sitting um, in a half thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate